Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema. For your free 30-day trial, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Michael Snydell. Hello. Hello. We also have Bill Graham. Woo! And today, a special guest returning. Or maybe Guten Tag? <laughs> no? <laughs> I think you mean bonjour for yeah, this film. Dude, yeah. wrong language selection. Um, wow. <laughs> so, uh, today, a special guest returning to the podcast. God only knows why you decided to do this, but we're so happy you did. It's Alex Haney. Hello. You're back. Yes. Always surprises me when people agree to come back to this madness. <laughs> it's one thing to come once, a second time, and well... <laughs> <laughs> So why don't you reintroduce yourself to the listeners at home? Okay, so I'm Alex Heaney. Um, I'm the editor-in-chief of Seventh Row, which is an online publication dedicated to long-form criticism. And through essays and interviews, we aim to help you parse your feelings about a film and understand how and why it works from a technical perspective. And we're probably best known for our eBooks that dive deep into a single film we love. Um, that looks at it from multiple perspectives with essays, and we do interviews with the entire filmmaking team. So last year we did that for three films, um, You Were Never Really Here, Leave No Trace, and Lean on Pete, all of which you can get online on our website. Um, do you know any, do you have any ideas of what's going to be coming this year? I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, we haven't announced it yet, but we have some super exciting um things in the pipeline um one very legendary um british director who's been making movies for years we are talking to um him and his like entire team which i don't think has ever been done before um that's about all i can say right now but we'll be making an announcement on march 29th that's last friday of the month about what that is well you heard it here first cryptic clues (laughs) as to what's going to be coming soon (laughs) Keep an eye out for that, March 29th. Um, other than that, the usual stuff before we get into our review. Find us on Twitter, at Film Stage Show. Facebook, search for The Film Stage Show. And, of course, you can email us, podcast at thefilmstage.com. And you can become a patron by giving us your money by going to patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow, where you will get access to our super secret Slack channel, where you can talk to everyone who listens to the show and us directly. You know, if that's your bag, better for you. You can also get access to secret raffles for awesome Blu-rays we've given away. Widows, which I know Michael loves. Burning, which we all loved. And you never know what will be coming next. So again, that's patreon.com slash show. And of course, as always, we are brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema, where every week, or every week, every day, their charismatic curators find a new film for you to watch and enjoy. Today, on the podcast, we are reviewing Transit by Christian Petzl, and just in time for that, 
movie has their What is an Auteur series going on, and who should be featured but Christian Petzold. So, we're going to be talking about Transit. Previously on this podcast, possibly hundreds of episodes ago, we talked about Phoenix, that is on movie right now, along with Barbara. So, if you are interested in this movie, and if you hear what we have to say and you think it sounds awesome, but you don't have Transit playing near you, or you would prefer to just stay wrapped in a blanket as the dregs of winter finally die under the boot heel of summer... I don't know where that came from. You can get a free 30-day subscription to Movie to see his two previous films, two most previous films, most recent previous films. Clearly, I'm having a lot of trouble with language today. And for your free 30-day trial of Movie, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. And that is that. We are now ready to get into our feature review. Again, that is Transit by writer-director Christian Petzold. This movie stars Franz Rogowski. Anyone want to help me out with these? I really would appreciate it. <laughs> no, you're fine. Keep going. Great, great, great. great. <laughs> no criticisms here. Next one's easier. Paula Beer <laughs> and Godhard Geese gonna stick with that and um this movie is about an occupying fascist german force moving on france and the man who is attempting to flee the country who has to use a little bit of identity subterfuge in order to do so much like phoenix this is a movie about identity truth lies and uh trying to exist in a brutal system here is the trailer. Und immer wenn die Tür aufging, fuhr er zusammen. Was machst du denn noch hier? Die machen Paris zu. Kommst du bald nicht mehr raus? Du kannst mir einen großen Gefallen tun. Du kannst die zwei Briefe für mich abgeben. Sind für den Weidel. Weidel der Schriftsteller. Und wohin? Marseille. Er suchte ein Hotel, etwas, wo er Ruhe finden, wo er sich verstecken konnte. Vous n'avez pas de titre de séjour. Ich ne pas rester. Ça, il faut pouvoir le prouver. All right, that is the part of the trailer for Transit. Let's talk about the film. We will, of course, begin with our nutshell reviews, spoiler-free, and then move into spoilers. And we will begin with our guest, Alexini. What did you think of Transit? Um, I really love the film. I've seen it three times now. Um, and I have to say, it's really worth seeing on the big screen. The first time I saw it... Um, I liked it, but it didn't like totally hit me. And I did a podcast on it and got talked around on why I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I saw it on the big screen. It was like a totally transformative experience because I think so much of the what's haunting about the film is in the soundscape. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think it's really great. I especially am impressed by how well it uses the kind of modern yet timeless setting um, because it's it it makes you feel like you know this problem could be your problem as opposed to something that's sort of either in the past or somebody else all right michael snydell yeah i i really like this one as well i i had actually seen this uh back during the chicago international film festival uh me and the uh lovely max o'connell what actually talked about it back then on that on that podcast as well um, and, uh, that first time I, I found it 
I, I feel like impressive was a word I kept coming back to. And the second time it was emotional. And, and that's, that's what I think I, I really want to kind of get to in talking about this, uh, this film is that, you know, it, it does a lot of, of, of smart things in the ways that it, it kind of uh, is very recursive and reflexive in terms of its structure. Uh, Alex already mentioned how it's both a modern yet timeless, um, a timeless setting, and just the the strange way that this film feels at once deeply uh, about you know like. And any immigrant that you, you pass by, as well as being about, you know, like an underworld and, and that almost uh, like fable style quality is is what I think truly uh, makes it such a uh, such an incredible film. Um, and and I think um, I, I think as well that it's what, what I like so much about this is. This is the last thing I'm going to say is that it's not, uh, you know, Petzl's other films are in some ways about moral dilemmas. They're about characters who know things that the other doesn't and how they handle these things. And interestingly enough, this isn't really a thing of am I going to do the right or wrong thing? If anything, a lot of these characters are kind of cowards <laughs> or they're uh, or they're people who have long since – uh, forgotten or stopped caring what it means to be good or bad. And it being about survival and the way it is makes it deeply thrilling and also just gives it a real spontaneity that uh, I haven't felt in his previous films. So yeah, I really, I really recommend this one. All right. Bill Graham. I think once you get past the initial kind of set of circumstances of what this film is trying to achieve and do and kind of sink into its rhythms, there's a lot to be had here. Um, whether it's the romance uh, kind of at the at the heart of this film or just like the interesting tweaks and and observations that this film makes um, – <clears throat> I think this one is definitely going to have a lot of discussion, and so I'm very curious to see where that goes. Um, anytime a film can kind of bring up that that level of discussion that I hope we end up having, um, it, it means that the film was worthy of its time and investment, and I definitely think this one is. Um, I have enjoyed I, I enjoyed Phoenix quite a bit. His uh, previous film, I believe it was his previous film. He didn't make something in between. No, it's it's his previous film. Okay, uh, I enjoyed that his one a lot. His most previous, some might say. <laughs> yes, his his most recent. I'll I'll rephrase it and and stick with that. Uh, cut everything else out. Um, and he. He kind of launched himself onto the scene, at least in in my uh, atmosphere, uh, with that film, and I was really struck by it. And I think that one is is loosely a like reimagining of Vertigo in some ways. Um, and this film is just based on like a 1948 book, if I'm not mistaken, which is interesting that he's adapting something else again, but. Um, he really gives it his own kind of personal flair, and I, I enjoyed just about everything about this film, really. 
All right. And um, yeah, this is uh, based off of a book. Um, the book is Transit by Anna Sagers. What, what year was it? Was it from 1948? You were asking me so many questions. Okay. That I was no, not it's actually earlier. It's, I think, 45. That's gonna, fascinating. Oh, actually, wow. I, uh, I, I figured it out. It's a 1942 novel. We were all wrong. <laughs> oh, was it? Okay. I knew it was early, but yeah, okay. Yep. Um, okay. Yeah, so I'm going to second every positive thing that's been said about this movie so far. Uh, I'm a huge fan of this film. Uh, Transit is... I Okay, so I, I don't know the best way for people to go into this movie. Because, like, I heard a logline pretty similar to, like, what I said at the top of this episode. And so when it starts and the the cars that i'm seeing are all modern and you know the world just looks modernish i was like oh man maybe i was wrong and then you start to like see the little edges of the world and i i realize like oh this is pretty much the nazi occupation updated for a modern world that is like let's say three degrees separated from our own um and so that was, for whatever reason, I just struggled so hard for the first, like, ten minutes to wrestle my brain into just accepting that. Um, but once I did, and I was, like, really in step with the movie, it, it just, like, clicked for me on all levels. I think that the uh, the way that the narration of this movie builds and you don't even really know who the narrator is for the longest time. It just like mm -hmm. works so interesting and so well. And it's kind of like a fun inversion of the way a narrator in these films usually is. This movie is like a fantastic little riff on uh, Casablanca and uh, just a whole bunch of other things. And there is a moment in this film where a man pretending to be an author says probably the most true thing that I've ever heard any character in a movie say about the act of writing <laughs> and just, you know, writing like that moments like that delivered like that in a story like this. It's just like, it's an almost miraculous film in that way. And there's so many great little twists and turns and, uh, yeah, like if, if anyone out there is listening to this and is like halfway interested in transit, I would say like, yeah, just like, don't learn anything more immediately switch off, go see it and then come back. Cause this is a, a hell of a movie to like discover a lot of times in a film we're recording this like one day after our captain Marvel <laughs> podcast, um, and that was a movie that, despite taking place in, like, other worlds and with people with incredible powers, like, it never felt like I was in it, discovering it, like, engaged with the act of learning about it. And this movie is, like, so similar to our world, but it has so much texture that I really felt like I was a lost passenger who was having to, like, grope along with all these other characters to figure the way things are going. And that is a, uh, a rare experience in film. And so it is to be treasured. So yeah, Transit. Two thumbs. Way, way up. <laughs> but we are like so reliably positive on this movie that 
I, critics love and I, I really hope finds an audience, but I just I just find it really funny. I was worried, Brian, because you were playing it close to the vest, what you thought about this movie. <laughs> so I thought you were going to pull a, yep, this didn't work for me. <laughs> I, uh, I like to dangle it's that possibility. It's, it's, it's too good. <laughs> I hate this movie. It makes me feel inadequate as a man, as a writer, <laughs> as a human being. Oh, jeez. No, I have I have very little uh, negative to say about this film whatsoever. I do want to say too, uh, Bill. I know I'm I'm taking your I'm stealing your spot here, but this movie's an hour and forty one minutes, and a lot mm-hmm. happens in that time. Yeah, and absolutely. it doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel sluggish. Like the pacing in this is almost the the uh, most like impressive part to this even more so than the structure to me. I don't know. I think like, and, te- and, technically it's so accomplished. Um, it came out in Canada last year. And it, if I had made a list, it would have been in like all of my top like categories for everything like costume design, production design, sound design, editing, cinematography is just like so beautifully done. Um, you know, it's funny. I was watching this the other night with my girlfriend and she was on the verge of like, it was late at night and I I was like, Hey, I need to watch this movie. Uh, it's a foreign language film. And she was like, uh Oh, and I was like, yeah, you may fall asleep. It's all good. If you do, I'll just put a blanket on you and you'll be fine. And, uh, so I started watching it with her and I kind of paused it a couple of times and went to get some food, get some other things done. And then um, by the last like 30 minutes, I could tell it was to the point where she would have normally been fast asleep, but she was like sitting up in her, in her, on, on, on the couch and like, paying such close attention to what was <laughs> happening and she was like what the hell is going on here and i was just like yeah it's getting good <laughs> so like it's got that kind of gravity where it just like once you kind of settle into its rhythms it really starts to pull you in when like some of that central mystery starts to unravel and you know, the film kind of plays out what it's what it's long game kind of is. Um, and I think I think at that heart, it's very, very interesting. And yeah, it definitely grabbed her attention and mine as well. Um, so, yeah, hour and 42 minutes. I was like, let's do this. <laughs> Sign I- me up. I, Alex, I'm curious. I, I know, obviously, I, I don't know if you are. uh familiar with this but do you know if uh transit did okay in canada even as far as like these types of re- relative art house films go <laughs> um that's uh i don't know but it's like canada is small sure especially movie the movie scene so i imagine it didn't get released beyond toronto ottawa and vancouver and in Toronto, it played in one cinema for the Bell Light Box, which is where the film festival is. Um, it played for a fairly long time, which suggests that it did well, because if things don't do well, they will leave within a week or two. And it played for about a month, a month and a half. So I guess it did decent, but like it probably only actually played on maybe three or four screens in Canada. 
Man, that's a crazy small amount of screens. <laughs> yeah, because it's yeah. like the one art house cinema in each of the, you know, three major cities. Yeah. Three, four major cities, yeah. In the whole of Canada. That's what this yeah. podcast is about now. I feel like I just have so many more questions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Canada is kind of like a giant country that only has like just a few highly populous <laughs> no well yeah that as well but a few highly populous cities um because guess what canada's fucking cold y'all so uh well, yeah. i mean there are parts of the u.s that are further north than canada but yeah pretty much like alaska we, we live within uh, <laughs> yeah. you know like a, less than 100 miles from the border is where like 90 percent of the population is I, uh, you know, to, to throw my, my experience in the ring, I was in Canada once. I went to TIFF. It was great. Um, saw something at the Bell uh, Lightbox. Fantastic. Um, back to transit. <laughs> um, yeah, I always wonder about a movie like this. I, um, it's apparently made $87,000 in the United States so far. That is the total that I guess it made in its, uh, it's like one week of super limited release before it slowly expands but like I, there's a lot of theaters on that list though i, I have to say I, I was surprised it is, as far as the expansion list goes yeah it's opening it's opening weekend it was only in two theaters i think it was new york and la and then it it's been slowly moving out i know it's in san francisco on the 22nd i think and um I just it's it's always it's it's one of these things where like I watch this movie and you know I'm able to watch it on like a Vimeo screener. I'd love to be able to watch it in a theater. Um and hopefully I will get the chance to do that because this is definitely a movie I'd like to see again. And I just like hope that other people find it. It apparently Phoenix had a 3 million dollar domestic gross wow. in the United States, which seems high that seems really high <laughs> but i am super excited about that <laughs> it's not like people rush out to see movies when they hear oh it's a holocaust drama <laughs> but that sounds like fun that the holocaust think, mystery that, so <laughs> yeah I, I, I think it's because holocaust. holocaust in there mm, not, not no thanks yeah but i mean the log line for that is a concentration camp survivor who was shot in the face <laughs> that's right but see, here's what i think and this gets into transit too, because like you could hear the, the the log line for this movie and think, oh, this is gonna be like a you know Babel level inquiry to kind of like human misery, the type of movie that like critics love and no one actually <laughs> likes. But like, sure. <laughs> this, I am so offended. You just compared this to inquiry. No, no. But that's what I'm saying. This. Like, this movie and Phoenix are, like, snapping good entertainment. Like, they're just, like, great. Like, at their base, they're, like, a killer noir potboiler. And this movie's, like, a paranoid Hitchcockian, like, twisted tale of identity. And then you can layer things on top of that. And this is sort of one of the things that I get into most whenever people talk about like what a film is trying to say and whether that like outweighs its negatives, it is 100% possible to make a film that says so much that is so urgent and important and relevant to the modern world and also still have it be like a damn good movie. And these are just damn good movies. Like you wouldn't need to know almost anything 
about anything. You could walk into this movie as an amnesiac and still feel it clicking and like get what you want from it. But the fact that you I think have you lose a lot if you don't know your his, your World War II Holocaust history. Oh, right. Like, but that's what I'm saying. Like this movie, if you know all that stuff, suddenly takes on a whole new level. But like there is a level of this film that works just as like a kind of like twisted little identity thriller because you got a guy who's pretending to be a guy and a woman who's looking for the guy that he's pretending to be even as they go closer together. Like that in itself is such a good hook. And then when you layer everything on top of it, this is just crying out for a food metaphor that I apparently can't figure <laughs> out. It's, uh, you know, all that stuff is the, the great, the great spices that are part of the, the buoy base that's just, uh, a really great, like, story. Yeah. Although I think that his, I think that Paula Beer's character is really underwritten and only works and makes sense in the context of his traumatic experiences because, both this film and Phoenix, they're both about people telling themselves stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the stories he tries to tell himself is that he's going to have this great romance with this woman. And the fact that she's underwritten is part of like underlying how little he knows about her. And he's just projected this fantasy onto her. Um, and if it was really about their relationship, then it would be a very big problem with the film. But I oh, think yeah, that that's absolutely. just sort of <clears throat> it's just one way like there's two stories that he has going for it. Well, there's a few, but there's two main people that he becomes really attached to and he chooses to tell himself one story and then wonders whether that was the right one. I absolutely agree that like her mm. character, there was a point even when I was watching the movie and I was like, I don't know if this like makes any sense. <laughs> But Mm -hmm. then, again, when it kind of clicked for me, what you were saying about, like, the stories these people are telling themselves, you can feel them, like, playing parts Mm -hmm. that they've either given themselves or that they know will be, like, almost the path of least resistance with the people around them. And Yeah, sorry. There's a line in the, the, the film that talks about, like, port cities and how, like, those are places to share stories. Yeah. And in this, the act of sharing a story isn't just telling someone your story, but then allowing them to become a character within it. Mm. Alex, you were going to say something? Yes. What was I going to say? Oh, goodness. Sorry, I got pushed into a new track of train of thought. Um, Yeah, I think... Sorry. (laughs) What were we talking about when my brain went? Can Um, I... Can I can I ask a question while you yeah. kind of gather your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, what are the sailors an analog for? Because I, I noticed that they are ever present in the backgrounds. Uh, they're like never interacted with, it, but they're constantly in the background. And that as like. I'm trying to think logistically of how this movie was kind of made and how they shut down certain areas of a city and things like that. But I'm like, okay, I get a lot of that, but you costumed or you purposely put the sailors in the background throughout this entire film. And I was just curious, like what y'all thought about that and maybe like the analog of that. Is is that something that was like omnipresent 
over in, I guess, France in during World War Two, or was it just kind of? I'm I'm not sure. Like, I, it is a port city, hmm. so like, there's on a very base level. I was like, well, yeah, there'd be a lot of sailors around, but it is interesting that they have, and you know, I know very little about maritime culture now <laughs> that they they kind of have like old time looking uniforms a lot uh-huh oh that's true yeah uh-huh. more um, so than that dates it almost more so than everybody else's outfits yeah which so, could belong in the 40s but could belong in present day exactly yeah. so like i i was kind of torn in that way because i was like well, yes yeah, you know there's a port city there's a lot of sailors and i'm like but God, like sailors don't dress up in their whites to go like to a bar nowadays do they like i go to annapolis and the like midshipmen from the academy do that but like they're required to and they're in the military and so part of me was wondering like are these people in the military but if the germans are coming you know would you not cast those away and try to play yourself off as just like a normal sailor Mm -hmm. that's kind of what i'm talking about when i talk about the texture of this movie and the way that it builds out its world because this movie doesn't have many sets it Mm -hmm. revisits a lot of them often but kind of the way that the world moves around it helps to fill it out yeah i mean that's a good point the fact that you would think they would cast them aside because i think part of what's going on in the film is everything feels so normal and yet you they know that something is going to change. And part of the reason why, um, like, Marie doesn't want to get on the boat and why it, there's this sort of strange sense of dread. Are, are we are we jumping into spoilers at this point? I don't think uh, she said anything. To, I don't uh, think that's spoilery. I, I think we're okay <laughs> at this point. Or, what, okay. What are, you, uh, what are you guys thinking? I think it's fine. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, but, like... Um, I think there's a line fairly early in the film where he's saying, you know, the fascists are coming and people are going shopping. <laughs> yeah. um, and there is this, you know, like they're sitting in cafes, having meals and drinking wine and telling stories and standing in lines at consulates. I mean, in some ways it feels very normal, but it's just the fact that you keep being told, you know, they're coming and that we saw them in Paris at the beginning that you have a sense that something is that you know everything's going to change but the fact that there is it's not like you have to run and hide every day it's just this kind of imminent presence that that's kind of um it's kind of what causes that paralysis and so maybe part of the reason that we're seeing the sailors and i hadn't really thought about this aside from i also noticed huh that's interesting is you know if they're not in a hurry to change their outfits it's kind of like because a, they're not necessarily going to be persecuted the way other people are. So the fascist key. coming yep. isn't scary, isn't the same kind of scary. And B, even if they, you know, they don't want to be recruited into having to be part of the fascists um, because they're in military outfits, they're like, well, you know, I've got time. You know, I can go shopping. I, I can wear my uniform. I'm not in any hurry. And that sort of imminent danger mixed with but everything's kind of okay is where what a lot of I think the power in the film and a lot of what it's dealing with they Hmm. make a point to say that like most of the people trying to get out and the people who are the most nervous are like the illegals um Mm -hmm. which 
you know, and we don't get a lot about the political reality of this reality that the movie is constructed. But if you if you are trying to draw like a comparison that is the most direct between, you know, German occupation in our World War II and whatever's happening in this world, then it would make sense almost that like everyone who is a citizen and even those who are part of the military, because there is like a collaboration government is totally fine because they're like, okay, there are doors getting knocked in and people getting dragged on the streets, but those people don't have papers. Those people are illegal. I'm totally fine. And Mm -hmm. again, you know, the movie could do more to underline this in a way that would be very like bold faced and kind of, I want to say almost annoying about how that parallels certain developments going on in our actual modern world. Um, but instead it kind of lets it exist as like an unspoken reality that these people are like dealing with. You know, you see like people who are clearly more nervous in the same way that you'd see people like look up in the first sound of thunder and the ones who have the umbrellas are not concerned. And the ones who only have a newspaper suddenly look like they're about to get shot. Like that's, that's kind of what's happening here. And I find that again, not to continuously ladle praise over the construction of this film, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, that's just like really good world building. Like it's really good insight. It's it's just really good. Mike, before I, I jump in, do you want to – you haven't talked in a little bit, so I'm just wondering if you want to add something. No, I was just thinking a little bit um, about how I, I feel like this is just kind of a unique movie in relation to fascism. Like fascism is a, is a subject that it's come up a lot. I feel like in films lately, and it's you know it, it's it, it's it's often I was used just as a- watching. I was just watching The Big Lebowski, so I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes, obviously the main one that everyone would bring up in terms of fascism. But but really, though, like Brian said, like there is a real uh, sense of generality and, and more of a sense of like individual consequence uh, that I think is, is really interesting here. And, and I mentioned, you know, we already talked about illegals and just like I think it's interesting that this movie is almost more about immigration than yes. fascism. Um, well, I, I think what's what's interesting is just look at, at how our main character walks around the city when he you know first arrives and he's kind of sneaking about, kind of avoiding big groups and things like that. And, and has then, his rucksack as well, which is just a, such an image. Sure, sure. <laughs> and then and then after that point, once he gets some money and once he gets his his kind of freedom in a way his way out his his get out of jail free card in a sense he relaxes and all of a sudden he's exploring the city and like we see this situation play out in like the hotel that he stays at when when something dramatic happens and we see all these people outside of their door yes but not doing anything, not helping because they, they understand that the game is kind of rigged where it's, it's every man for himself. And if you step up and you try and help that person, they may look at your papers a little bit more critically. They may, you know, uh, they may just revoke your rights. You know, you just, you, you're playing with fire in a lot of sense. And, 
and this kind of goes back to like what was actually happening during World War II in some of these occupied cities and things like that, where there were people that weren't Jewish or weren't, you know, under persecution that were just like, I don't know, man, like I can't really help. And if I do help, like <laughs> bad shit's probably going to happen to me too. So just stay away from me. And, you know, hopefully life just kind of moves on. And that's the unfortunate reality back then, not to say that people shouldn't stand up to, you know, oppression of of peoples and things like that. But, I mean, not everybody has that luxury, you know, not everybody has. Yeah, it's understandable, if not forgivable. Um, One of the things that historians say is that the first country that the Nazis occupied was Germany Mm -hmm. because they had to basically turn an entire country's psyche into that. And like, you know, there are obviously people there who embraced it fully. And then there were the people who were just like, dear God, if I just like do my job, like everything will be fine for me. And that's all I can hope for right now. Sure. I think one of the things that the film does really effectively is because it doesn't tell you why he's being persecuted, why he was in the camps, you don't find out that he's Jewish. They don't talk about, I mean, the woman with the dogs talks, mentions that she's Jewish, but this, we don't really have any reason to think that everybody there is. Is it sort of like the reason why they're, they're running is almost random? Um, and the idea, and what's good about that is it feels like it could be you. And I think I think sometimes when we think about Holocaust films and this, you know, this even happened with the characters in Phoenix is you think, oh, well, you know, that uh, he's Jewish or she's Jewish. So she's going to go to the camps and she's going to die because that's what happens to Jews. And I mean, if you're Jewish and watching those things, you'd be like, oh, shit, that could be me. But if you're not Jewish and watching those things, then it's kind of, well... I wouldn't have been killed on the Holocaust. Um, it's bad, but you would have, I would have been the person looking away. And in this film, it's sort of you could be you could be on either side. Mm-hmm. And I think it does a really good job of making you feel, you know, in that first the first raid that happens and he runs away, it's like they're looking at papers and you realize he has the wrong papers. And it's, (laughs) you know, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to see from a modern perspective because, you know, we're, we're used to showing, not used to showing papers in a fascist state, but you're used to showing, you know, your, it's not like you've never had to show papers usually at the border. Um, And if you, you know, have a good, passport like a canadian passport or an american passport then you're usually not too worried about showing your papers um maybe an american passport's not so good right now but yeah okay <laughs> i mean it'll get canadian you where you want to go are but people good. are gonna probably spit in your food like <laughs> yeah. I, I had to uh I, I work for the government um as a contractor i'm not doing anything that important but uh i had to get a security clearance And yeah, I had to produce like a whole bunch of papers. And even though I've done this before, and even though I know that all my documents are immaculate and are exactly what I need, there is still, when you step into a government building and have to produce a number of documents that a person in a uniform then looks at, there's still like this weird fear that ripples through you. Mm-hmm. I had to do this process 
because I was going to help out with FEMA um, uh, do some inspections when uh, the storms rolled into the Houston area really badly. And uh, I was I went to the FEMA building and like you have to show up at a certain time. You have to do all of this like fingerprinting and then like you have to walk through like several different uh, different uh, metal detectors. And there's like all these armed guards around and you're just like this. I'm just trying to help people, man. Like this is this is a lot going on here and yeah you feel under scrutiny the entire time you're in there and it's it's a really weird experience having gone through that just to try to help someone else right like i'm not being background checked for like some kind of security clearance i'm being background checked just to make sure that they're paying someone that isn't like going to steal the money and then like not help these people, I guess. I don't know. It it was, it was really interesting going through that process and feeling that scrutiny, even though there was no real reason for me to feel that way. You know, I think the film gets that across really well too. In that very early scene, the first time he uh, gets in line to speak to someone at the, the consulate, I guess is what I would call that. And he's he's speaking to the person next to him, or, or this person next to him is, I mean, he's not bragging, and he just seems to want to talk to someone. But he's saying about all of the different pictures he needed for his passport, yeah, the angles, the various passages, <laughs> the various things, and and you can just see Ed Friends uh, Rakowski's face this whole time is like, oh, I'm in way over my head. It's it's kind of <laughs> sure. a it's kind of a lovely scene that that gets to, uh, across, you know that that depth and complexity without also, you know, laboring it to or belaboring it too much. Yeah. I, I, I was really struck by that sequence because it, it reminded me a lot of the DMV where everybody's got like their papers that they think they have organized. And then you show up to the counter and the lady's just like, nah, you need R 52 go back. And you're just uh. like, no, <laughs> that's why when he um when when one of the people at the consulate asks him like what's the last thing you wrote and he remembers the part that he read in the the author's book about mm-hmm. <laughs> waiting to register in hell and like years passing and then a person walks by and you're like excuse me i'm here to i'm just here to register to get into hell and they're like what are you talking <laughs> about you're already in hell <laughs> it's just like oh no that's so true and that adds to the purgatorial feel of this film um, especially in the way that it ends, which is a great segue <laughs> towards spoilers. If we would like to do that, anyone have any final thoughts before we spoil the movie? All right. Nope. Your time is up. Let's get into spoilers. <laughs> um, how do we feel about like the last shot of this movie? Cause there was a part of me like Phoenix ends in a way that it, it was like bone chilling. Like it was just like someone had sunk a knife made of ice into my soul. Like it was so good. And it didn't. Is this the it, swing low part? I, I'm sorry. I've not seen Phoenix in a while. Is yeah. it the piano scene? Yep. Okay. And, um, right. and so like this film has a similar ish kind of feel to it, but also it feels a little more, um, spinning top at the end of inceptiony 
<laughs> you know, where it's like the answer isn't the answer. The answer is almost like the question to be real absurd about it. Was everyone totally on board for that? Or does anyone kind of wish that there had been more concrete finality to that moment? Well, I think thematically I like that because, I, you know, throughout the whole film, um, Georg is kind of is kind of wondering, you know, whether to tell the truth to Marie. Uh, uh, like, and he's kind of I mean, he kind of does like multiple times. He's like, I think he's dead. (laughs) And she just she just doesn't believe him. And so I I think that that last scene, it it needs to be ambiguous because in a way to me, this whole film is almost about whether to tell the truth and know something or whether to live in ambiguity. Oh, geez. Ambiguity (laughs) and to be somewhat happy. Like I, we've been talking about this a little bit, but like, I think what I find so interesting about the people who don't successfully get, uh, transits or visas is that they essentially, they just want to gorge themselves on time. They just want to pass the time, whether it's sleeping, whether it's getting drunk, whether it's eating or, you know, or maybe just ending it all. (laughs) But in the case of all of those, all of those people are, are living in a place of um, are living in a place where they know what the rest of their life is going to be, and they don't see any options. But in the case of Mar- in, in the case of is Maria Marie there or not? Like George, in, the, in at least from my point of view, like, he almost needs to live in that ambiguity like there's no way that he was ever going to get an answer even if he had good intentions he was always kind of doomed to this fate or at at least that was that was my view of it if that makes any sense alex yeah well i think there's sort of two things going on with with that sort of final image i mean one is there's something about her being kind of an apparition throughout the film and he associates that ringing of the bell with her coming in but throughout the film, she keeps sort of showing up and turning around and seeing seeing him and thinking he's her husband. Um, and the fact that she's sort of not wholly developed and often even when she's sort of telling her story in that hotel room, it's far away. There's, there's something about her that's sort of hmm. completely surreal throughout. And so I think almost that final image, like there's no there's no sense that it's actually her. I don't think... Although I think that it, it's deliberately left open, but the idea is kind of he one of the things that he starts to live off of is the idea of his relationship with her and his romance with her. And the irony of the film is he starts the film, you know, able to survive because he's not going to trust anybody. He's not going to do anything for anybody. He's really concerned about even trying to deliver these letters to to Vital. Um He doesn't want to be saddled with Heinz with the infected leg. Um, And he's sort of like constantly dodging the authorities. And you see, you know, he's able to survive because he doesn't have attachments. But at the same time, he's this complete blank slate. We don't know anything about him. And it's like because he doesn't really have an identity. And then he sort of takes on this identity of Vital and sort of starts, ends up, you know, knowing the, the guy's wife and being treated like a writer and suddenly other things about him start to come into focus, like what his profession was. And he starts to have this relationship with this young boy who he starts to love like a son. And 
by the end, it's like now that he can get away, he finally has something to stay there for. Um, you know, like now that he's mm-hmm. finally got something to live for, he can't get away because of it. And before he didn't have anything to live for, but then that's kind of why he was able to survive. Um, and there's this sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't um, thing that's going on, which is sort of the inverse of, of Phoenix, where in Phoenix she thinks she can, she wants to go back to her old life. And she realizes that she doesn't actually have an old life to go back to. And then she has to deal with, you know, what that means. And she's slowly trying, slowly realizing that throughout the film. Um so I think that that the, the that final image kind of plays into both of those things. And I think the other thing is throughout the film sounds you hear danger before you see it. So he's he'll hear the sounds of sirens and then and then he'll see the cops or he'll you know, he'll hear people running. He'll, he'll hear the cops pulling up. He'll hear any sound of danger before it happens. And at the end, it's like he's finally given up and he's just sitting in the bar. And so then we hear the bell. And what does that mean? Does that mean he's dead? He's going to die? Does it mean he's going to keep going because he has hope because it could be her? Like, it's there's a lot of open-ended questions there. I, I, I And that's, that's kind of where, like, I have fallen. Because when I first saw it, <clears throat> his sort of smile... Made me think, like, oh, she's there, and we don't have to see it. And then I was like, maybe he's just smiling because he likes that he can't help but turn around. And then everyone who walks through, he smiles at. And, um, yeah, in the end, it was more like, yeah, this is a guy who was legitimately like, I don't want to, I don't want to deal with this guy with his hurt leg. Like, this is annoying as hell. Like, he has all these reasons not to do anything, and now he has found seemingly like, something to exist for i also uh, i'm so glad that you brought up the concept of like the sound design of this movie because it is like deeply important to setting up the atmosphere and to just basically acting as like a narrative red flag or conceit throughout the entire film do you want to elaborate on what you mean by that i'm curious what you mean i just like it's it's when you first start watching the movie like it's just sirens all the time it's (laughs) um every moment of the film is is sirens and then he's on this train and there's almost like a serene stillness yeah to the hum of the tracks and everything and you actually like see I guess I almost like read it as his visualization in his mind as to what he he was hearing, just the way the tracks move. And he is so peaceful that he can read, which he usually hates to do. And then he gets to Marseille and things are sort of okay for a little bit. And then the sirens start coming again. And you like the, the, the danger has sonically followed him and it's interesting that like the last main sound we hear is the ringing of that bell, which is like a cheerful greeting rather than the sound of like a siren that's, that's coming for him. Mm-hmm. Although it could be read as like a death now. Yeah, it could be. Um, but I think also it's, what's interesting too is the, what sounds we don't get. Like when the woman commits suicide and jumps off the bridge, we don't hear her falling. Yeah. Um, and. And that's another like, moment it, of like extreme peace for him, according to our narrator. Well, and no, it's the moment before she falls. Asleep. Well, yeah, but that's and that's kind of that. I'm sorry. I should have been more clear. Yeah, it's. <laughs> 
once she's dead, he felt just great peace. No, he's he's like standing there in this beautiful day. He's like lighting a cigarette, and he has almost the same kind of like passivity and like tunnel vision as he does when he's on the train. And then he is snapped out of it once again by realizing that there's a dead body right near him. When when the guy has a it can't breathe at the consulate, the conductor. And there's all this commotion, but there isn't really the sound to accompany that. And part of it is it, there's this sort of numbing effect that you start to feel that he's had this numbing effect. Like so many horrible things have happened around him that people die and it's like it doesn't break him because he's been watching people die like crazy. Exactly. The raid almost conditioned that early raid too almost conditions you to like – uh, that passivity that you're speaking of and in the sense i mean the narration actively indicates that no one said a word because they were feeling deep shame but just just as you're talking about this i'm realizing that like those the early raid and the rhythm of that stuff is, is what it seems like it's yeah almost uh getting you ready as a viewer as it goes on and this is this is somewhat related to the sound design, but I, I find the ways that Petzold and um, whoever his location scout was, uh, what they chose for outside areas. We've spoken a lot about, um, you know, the inside locations, whether it's his uh, apartment or whether it's the cafe. And those are all – they're not safe spaces, but there's a certain claustrophobia. There's a certain um, – there's a certain uh, piece in a sense that things aren't really going to be broken up. But then when you're outside, it's almost maze-like without actually having the visuals of a, of a maze. Everything is so open-ended. It seems like there's alleys that go nowhere. And even still, like even when he runs away from the authorities early on, he seems to get lost himself caught in between like you know two uh squads of uh, of men so i just i found that so interesting the the ways that um they shoot those spaces because it's just it, it never felt like a set to me which is not a sensation i get a lot in metropolitan areas well and the thing with marseille too is I mean, they're shooting it when you can see the sort of heat of the sun and these these golden brown colors. And it, it looks, you know, like paradise. Um, and that's that direct contrast between the sort of t the terror and the fact that they're kind of in this uh, idyllic location, I think also adds to that, to heightening that sort of that divide and, and the fear. Or almost not just the fear, but the way how surreal it feels. Like it almost doesn't feel real that the fascists are coming, because there are no signs of it. It's still a beautiful day, and you're still sitting in a cafe. Um, but there's just sort of the knowledge that they're coming. Just to just to get this out of the way. <laughs> speaking of the cafe, I love that the narrator is the bartender there, mm -hmm. and that he never says like. Oh, there I am. Like this, like even, even when he says, like, you know, when I spoke to him, you don't see that. Like, that's not sure. part of the story. So there was a point where I was like, 
when when he first sits down in the in the cafe and the guy's like, you know, when we spoke, we talked about like a movie where zombies went to a mall. And I was like, when is the guy going to sit down? When are they going to have this conversation? Because <laughs> I've been really curious who the hell this narrator is. And then at a certain point, it sinks in. You're like, that's just the bartender. Because this guy just sits at the bar telling the bartender his troubles. It's um, it's really interesting. And I I just wanted to highlight that. Like, that is kind of awesome because like when you're relating the story that someone else has told you rarely are you like a real character in it you know rarely are you the nick caraway to someone's jay gatsby mm-hmm. i think it's really well, interesting to, i'm sorry alex go ahead i was just gonna say i mean it's an interesting counterpoint to i mean the line that you were talking about earlier which was when he's sitting in the the consulate and saying you know it was these for these writers it was as if all of these terrible experiences they had were just so that they could write about them to feed their writing and that he's you know he's not going to write any more school essays anymore um and so the fact that we don't know who the narrator is until the end is quite effective because then when you find out it's the bartender it means you know he he just changed his tune because the bartender can only tell us his story because he told the bartender his story and he's so resistant to hearing other people's stories and telling his story throughout most of the film and part of that seems to be because you know he's lost it's almost like he doesn't want to tell his story because it's just he's lost everything and so he's become blank and doesn't really have any attachments or Mm -hmm. things that make him him um and so by the time by the end it's he's you know you find out he's changed his tune because now he's told his story to the bartender and like what is the bartender going to do with it you know it it's it's not like that's a place for posterity but it kind of feeds into this to the sort of the other part about you know the holocaust which is just about wanting people to you know the importance of telling the story so that people remember it and it almost doesn't matter who you tell it to uh, since you brought it up and I alluded to it earlier. Yeah, that scene where he eviscerates the way that writers view the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that cut me, man. It cut me deep. It's uh, <laughs> it's pretty true. And I just love – it's the one thing that I've ever heard someone say that made me go, oh, my God. Like, yeah, why do I love writing so much? It is just the – like the continuation of that nonsense busy work that they would give you in school where it's like yeah every single one of your experiences just turn that into an essay but i think that's sorry i think that's because he doesn't have any hope at that point he changes his tune because he's now he does like well, even, even though it's but the end now in a way he really doesn't have hope because before he had a transit visa and a ticket and he was going to get out of there but but he had nothing to live for like he could have just yeah. been another one of the many suicides that he's been surrounded by and even like, more than eventually. that i mean he he wasn't even a writer like he was just like what sure. is the type of thing that a writer would say as to why he quit and he's like well this is and, like and yeah. a reason that i've never written and then so he he not only has like found hope but he's now understood the point of storytelling in general and is like taking it up like he didn't rediscover a lost love he's suddenly like oh this is why people put pen to paper like this is why looking at things that way is something that's worth doing and presumably part of that is him you know having understanding and feeling the story that he read because we don't know the story until quite far into the film and we find out that there's a that you know it's the guy waiting around trying to register in hell and 
and by the time we find that out, you know, that that's his story. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think too, what I was, what I was going to say a little bit earlier about the bartender is uh, I, I really think it's a really smart how Matthias Brandt, who plays that character, how there's such a different, there's such a different demeanor <laughs> that he conveys when we actually hear him talk outside of the narration. Like, you know, as we were just talking about, Brian, you were saying that just as uh, Gorg, um, you know, he's not a writer, but nonetheless, he thought of the most poetic reason that he couldn't write. The, the barman as well is, you know, we don't know anything about them, but by all accounts, according to their narration, they they seem like, you know, a, a poetic soul or something. <laughs> so to then find out that he's just kind of like, I mean, he's not he's not mean or like unfriendly or anything, but just when we actually hear him talk to have it not be anything you know florid or anything you know just being like yeah i'll I'll take the i'll take the manuscript whatever (laughs) (laughs) like it's 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 another like a lovely uh a a lovely thing about you know wanting to tell stories and also stories is ultimately being a way to pass time i i I guess that's uh, something that i just keep going back to is i i can't help but feel that um you know, interestingly enough, I mean, compared to something like Phoenix, which I think does find a lot of a lot of value in the stories that uh, that character, you know, that character tells herself about who her husband actually is. I don't think that this film necessarily finds value in the stories that the misfortunes that these many people have. I, and I think that's like I, I think it's a, a very strange thing to be able to do that without also coming across very cynical and and i i'd be happy to hear uh, someone disagree if they feel that way that's (laughs) as we both jump on michael (laughs) alex please go first um well i just think that generally we don't really hear the stories of people's misfortunes we hear the stories of their triumphs their triumphs well and you know and the bureaucratic difficulties you know like the getting the right photo or i'm stuck with these dogs what am i supposed to do um and the tragedy comes when they don't have stories you know like the woman with the dogs she decides she doesn't want to talk right before she's going to commit suicide it's like the story telling stories doesn't matter and with georg he goes from you know, not speaking at all, not wanting to talk to anybody, just being annoyed at listening to other people's stories to, I mean, one presumes that at the end he has now told his story to the bartender. That that, that the ability to now tell his story is the thing that is keeping him going um, as opposed to, you know, like Vidal killing himself and not being able to tell any more stories. Yeah. And I was going to say, I mean, the the first time <clears throat> that we see the uh, Deutsches Reich Riespass, <clears throat> which translates to German Empire Travel Pass, that he steals from the author, um, it is while he is paging through the author's book, those two things are very clearly framed right together. Um, mm-hmm. And he carries both with him. And... At the end, the one thing that he gives away is the travel pass, but he keeps the book. 
And then he gives that to the bartender. the bartender for safekeeping, but refuses to let the bartender keep him safe. Like, the bartender offers him, like, a room, like, a place to hide, and he doesn't take it. Like, hmm. and and so that that says something to me. Um, and I think that it says that, like, there is value in this story. And the fact that the bartender hears his story and passes it on gives value. And I think that the fact that he's willing to listen and share kind of shows that he's suddenly more willing to value like human life that previously he had been willing to like give up as long as he was able to get his own. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing too, is that he hits a lot of things happen very quickly in about the last 10, 15 minutes of the film. Um, and all of these, you know, people who are supposed to escape are going to die and he's going to, he's, you know, says he's going to go off on this fool's errand to chase after the kid. Um, and it really brings it back to the, the, the story about how this uncertainty and waiting is what's hell. And it's almost like this running is what's hell. And if it's, if it's a fool's errand anyway, then he might as well just stop. Because it's easier to just stop than to keep running. Like, he does get all of this hope, but then it's also kind of crashed. And crushed, like, completely in the last five minutes. Yeah. So fuck you, Michael. <laughs> I, I think the other wrinkle in that <laughs> is uh, to... You, you know, I, as far as someone I'm still puzzling over is uh is melissa's role in this i i think driss obviously you know that's important in uh Georg's arc you know in of, of empathy that we've been speaking about but melissa is someone who i, I i'm not sure where i'm at with her even as i i like that that relationship quite a bit but it it just doesn't quite um Remind me of yeah, Melissa. That's Driss's mother. Yeah, Driss's mother. I mean, I think one of the things that's, that really came through to me the last time I was watching the film when I was thinking about the sound is all of the warning signs are sounds. Sure. Like that's that's how you know you get away. And the fact that his mother is deaf. Is deaf. Yeah. You see that he, that they're you know so vulnerable that basically it's Driss is going to have to take care of them if sound is what tips you off. And so I think this sense of that sort of amplifies any kind of guilt he might feel um, because being able to hear things is such a big part of how you save yourself in this particular situation. I'm really glad I'm on this podcast with such smart people who <laughs> <laughs> caught all of these things that I really wish I caught and I'm not at all feeling stupid about. <laughs> You've seen this movie how many times? I've uh, seen it three uh, times. Oh, I was asking Michael because I wanted oh, to okay. shame him further. Uh, zero. I've seen this movie zero times. <laughs> I've seen this movie half a time, I think, apparently. Yeah. I um I had it on the background while I was doing dishes. I feel oh, like I got right. everything, oh. even though I don't speak French or German. So okay. <laughs> oh poor Michael. Um, yes. So I'm trying to think if there was anything else that I like absolutely wanted to talk about from this movie. I really like that main piano theme. Oh mm -hmm. yes, that is gorgeous. 
It has actually been stuck in my head through the entirety of this podcast. Yeah, it's an earworm. <laughs> like a really kind of depressing earworm. <laughs> sure. Like an Elliot Smith song. <laughs> <laughs> the, my my issue sometimes in talking about a movie that everyone likes or that I am especially like into is that I'm always worried I'm just going to be like and then this part was awesome and then this part was awesome. It reminds me of like when I'm a child and my parents are like, you know, what did you do today? And you had a really good day. And so you just point by point, walk them through it mm-hmm. and just lose all of their patience and don't say anything intelligible or interesting. Um, so I'm, I've been doing my best in this, not to just say stuff like that, but like just moments that stick with me, him fleeing from the train after the the train has stopped uh leaving uh the body of Heinz behind him and just waiting for the right moment as a different compartment is getting raided yeah mm-hmm. that's that's again some like real crackerjack filmmaking right there it's uh he's real good at it um i like the kafkaesque madness that is you can't stay in this hotel until you can prove that you don't want to <laughs> stay yeah that's <laughs> um and then uh and then, that yeah, one just, role is played really well in one <laughs> scene too by that by that actress. I, I don't have her name in front of me, but she's <laughs> great. She in that is one swell. Scene. That is perfect casting. <laughs> and um, yeah, the Mexican and uh, the American Council. I mean, just like just the the weird kind of like their total. <laughs> their total fineness with everything that's going on just the way that like these quiet lines of people are there and then you hear like you know the uh, like the doctor's office voice going like vital vital and he never responds to that name on the first go and it's hard to (laughs) discern whether it's because it's not his or because he's just legitimately like distracted by something else like even if they were saying you know georg would it still would it still take mm-hmm. him a second to like bring himself back into this like purgatorial madness that he's having to go through? Well, I think anytime you go through those those wait periods, whether it's super stressful or not, like you're you're almost. I, I know for me, when I, my name gets called in those situations, I'm almost like I wait to hear my name again, and I'm like, oh yeah, 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 okay, cool. Like you are actually calling me. I'm not just like responding to something that I didn't actually hear. You know, it's one of those situations where you're just like, whoa, this is finally happening. And then and then you have to (laughs) reconfirm it, you know. Um, But I mean, he is definitely focused out of the window at at two particular uh, sequences. I think in the American consulate um, in particular, uh, because he's looking down at the location where he had the Sunday with the, uh, with the young boy with Driss. And then the second time around, she's waiting for him there, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed. Well, so Michael, you just watched all three of the films in this Petzl trilogy, right? Two. I, I, I have seen Phoenix years ago, but oh, okay, yes. so you didn't rewatch it. So I, I, I mean, I'm wondering where you think it fits. I've seen them all, but I haven't seen Barbara since it came out at TIFF, which was like a decade ago. Well, if you sign up for a free trial of movie at <laughs> mubi.com slash filmstage. 
You can get it now. You can watch it on your phone. You can watch it on your laptop, your smart TV. You really can watch anything anywhere with Mubi. I think it's also on Canopy as, as well. It I think is. People Michael? Are lucky Nobody enough. cares about that. Michael. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. <laughs> Second podcast in a row. I'm fearing for my life. Okay. We're um, not brought to you by Canopy, Michael. <laughs> I, I'm still thinking about uh, Barbara. I, I think I like this better than Phoenix at the very least, though, because I, I think Phoenix has – uh potentially bigger gut punch moments i I mean especially in terms of that last scene uh it's you know something that's been built up to throughout the entire film but i just like how open-ended uh transit feels not in the sense of it it being ambiguous but literally a a sense that where does this character go where does this character go as well as the sense that i'm i'm just not feeling uh, a, a sen- I, I just didn't feel the script in this movie, and that's one of my f- absolute favorite sensations. Is, <laughs> is not even when it's unpredictable, but just getting a sense that each moment feels totally present, and that's something interestingly enough that I felt about a uh, another film we're going to be talking about, Captain Marvel. I, you you got it. It was definitely Captain Marvel. Another <laughs> film we'll be talking about in a couple weeks uh, from another major auteur uh, that actually felt very similarly about. So dragged across concrete. <laughs> oh my! <sighs> what are we know, talking about in a couple weeks? How are you ahead of me on this? I don't know. What's well, not climax? I will tell you that. <laughs> Did you see Climax, Alex? No, not yet. I'm still reeling from Love 3D, <laughs> which I was persuaded to see when I was at Cannes. Oh, God. It was an experience, but it was like, wait, didn't it? It was supposed to start at midnight and start till 2 a.m. to oh, get out of no. there until like 4 a.m. Oh, like no. Two hours of lineups and I had to sleep the whole next day, and I did not enjoy it. <laughs> oh. Is it Dumbo? Oh. <laughs> is it uh, us is tim no <laughs> i've not seen either of those films <laughs> this is gonna Brian bite me still trying to figure it out <laughs> yeah you can't you can't leave us on the on that that bell ring is it come on Pet Mike. Cemetery? Turn, turn around I like, right no i've not seen that one yet it, oh then hopefully it's peter lou it is not Peter Lou. I did is, not get to see Peter Lou. Is it this missing is a fun Link? game. It oh is God. not missing Link. Hellboy? This is not nearly as fun it, as you think it's not it is. Hellboy. Oh, I know what it is. Oh, wait. You just said it wasn't High Life, was it? It is not High Life. High Life's a while away, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, I'm in April now. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> it's the screeners. beginning of April. Shazam. <laughs> All right, we need to end this. <laughs> Just tell us the goddamn movie, Michael. Alex, did I answer your question? (laughs) Um, sort of. (laughs) Okay. You know, I liked, I like, I liked Barbara quite a bit. I I like Transit a lot. And I I like Phoenix. (laughs) Wow. That's great, Michael. Yeah, really helpful. (laughs) Brian, you're still trying to figure it out, aren't you? (laughs) A little bit. All Beginning right. of April, I think, I'm scrolling. I think, I think we're good. Fine, it's a 
It's a Chinese director. Oh, Shadow. No. <laughs> I don't know. How anyway. are we so bad at this? <laughs> All right. I'm I'm ready to get this done with. Yeah. Why is Michael just not telling us what the goddamn movie why, is? Why would I spoil like what I think of something? Is it the curse of La Llorona? <laughs> no. Alright, this is Is that by a major auteur now? You know, that movie seems like legitimately one of those ones that might be made by an auteur. It is not. Um so let's um Let's give our final thoughts. Are, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to give a shout out to? Is there any like moment in the film that you feel is going to stick with you the most? And um, I guess just since we, we asked Michael about this, I'll say I think this is a all around better, fuller movie than Phoenix. But I think I had more fun watching Phoenix. And I think I still prefer Phoenix just on a visceral level. That's fair. Bill, that's your that's your point too. Do you agree or disagree with these qualitative statements? <laughs> uh, I I revert back to uh, I am a goldfish and I don't really remember Phoenix that much besides enjoying it. So I it's impossible to rank. So that's Good. that's my feeling. Great. Well, right. I just rewatched Phoenix yesterday. Um. I really loved it when it came out, but I think Transit is better. But I think they're especially interesting to watch them back to back because they're kind of inverse, inverted versions of each other. They definitely are. This is, is this the first film he's done without Nina Haas? I don't think so. Okay. I I know they'd done a lot of collaborations. I was, I was very surprised that she wasn't in that, wasn't in this, but... Michael, this is your last chance to tell us the movie you were talking about. <laughs> is it Beach Bum? You know, some people say that things are purest white. Oh. Oh, Ash is the purest white. Are, are you not a fan, Alex? Jesus, oh, Michael. No. Even, even when giving us that fucking on-the-nose hint, you were like, but I'm not going to say quite I, what the movie is jesus michael so, do you was, want to come back and tell me why, I, why i'm wrong alex <laughs> <laughs> i don't i don't think i can force myself to watch that again once was enough oh my we will make you watch it again it. if you just <sighs> want to come on here and just constantly nope michael during his statements <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't i honestly don't know that i have a lot to say about it other than like oh it was boring Damn. All right. Well, wow. a slam on Ash is wow. the Purest White to end out this conversation <laughs> about transit. A fantastic movie that is expanding. So check it out. It's uh, it's very, very good. And that is it. So um, Ash is Purest White. <laughs> at some point, we will talk about that. Um, but not now, not anymore. So that is it for today. Uh, allow me to reiterate that you can find Barbara and Phoenix on Mubi. That is M-U- only Mubi. M U B I dot com. Don't listen to anything Michael has to say about anything. Mubi is the place to go to see Phoenix and Barbara. Um, and uh, on top also of a bunch of other. Still on Al- uh, 
Queen of Earth is still on movie. So if you really want to watch Brian's favorite movie, uh, it's yes. still on movie. You can also watch King of New York and 444 Last Day on Earth by Abel Ferreira and um, a bunch of other really great stuff. I will once again plug The Bigamist by Ida Lupino as well. Again, all you got to do to get a free 30-day trial of MUBI is go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Also, don't forget to become a patron for this show. Go to patreon.com slash show and give us your money. And that is it for today. We have done what we came to do, and we can now say goodbye. Alexini, again, thank you so much for deciding to endure this again. I hope it was just as fun this time as it apparently was last time. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> that was a firm no. <laughs> I'll translate that from German. Oh, <laughs> Nine. Um, yeah. All right, Alex, why don't you kick us off by telling the fine people at home where you can be found uh, between now and the next time that you grace this podcast? Uh, sure. Uh, you can find my writing and our books um, on 7th Row. That's 7th-row.com, S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. You can find me on Twitter at BWestCineast. That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S. TE. And you can find me also on the Seventh Row podcast, where we're currently doing a, a two-part episode on like the best Canadian films of the last year. So it's a really good resource to find. Catch up on Canadian cinema, which is really, really great right now. What would you throw out there? Just, just pick one at random. What would you? Which one would you pull out? Well, the one that you can actually see I'll pull out, um, which is called Giant Little Ones. It's just opened in the U.S. Um, it's a really, really wonderful um, teen movie, I guess. It kind of feels like a teen movie. It's about teenagers, but it's got a lot on its mind without being didactic um, and really smart about sort of the blurry lines of adolescence and sexuality. Um, yeah, so I'd highly recommend that. And then there's a whole bunch of other things, but I don't think you have any way of seeing them in the States right now. Oh, well, I guess we're not as fancy as Canada. But, but, I mean, when Mouthpiece comes out, that's kind of like one of the very best movies of, I don't know, the decade. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. All right. Bill Graham. Uh, you can find me online searching for any other thrillers that are under two hours. Come <laughs> hit me up with your recommendations. Um, at cable bfg and then you can also find me on the slack channel bill you're gonna love drag across concrete Woo! All it right. is two hours and 47 minutes long hey that is not what i wanted <laughs> all right michael snydell uh you can find me on twitter at at snydell where i will be oh i had the joke that i was gonna do and now i can't remember it so you can find uh, that joke by following Michael Snydell for when he finally remembers it. Wow. Follow up. Th- that's, this is perfect. Okay. Uh, you can also find me on Letterboxd uh, at, at Snydell and – or uh, at Snydell. And uh, I have an interview with uh, Kent Jones about Diane. All right. At the film stage. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. 
Um, yes, you can find my reviews and writing and all of these episodes at thefilmstage.com. Of course, you can find me on Twitter at Brian J. Rowan. Uh, find me on all the social media sites at Brian J. Rowan. I will have an interview coming out as well. It will be on this podcast feed, so you can look forward to that. It is, uh, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be a good one. I'm excited for it. But anyway, that is all for today. Join us next week when we will be talking about us, as well as shortly before or after that, talking about Dragged Across Concrete. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next time. It's